Over 3,000 years ago, a mysterious and unique culture held sway in the far north of Europe. Far beyond the limits of the Mediterranean world, in the realm known to the Greeks as Hyperborea, in later ages said to be populated by giants living beyond the north wind, an elite class of god-kings held sway. Clad in gold, riding upon the backs of mighty chariots, wielding magnificent swords of bronze, this elite class of warrior kings ruled over an astonishingly complex and, for the first time in history, connected society. To the Greeks and Romans of the later classical age, the lands beyond the Mediterranean were seen as a world apart, inhabited by illiterate barbarians, capable of little more than warfare and slavery. In reality, by the time the great city of Rome was founded in the 8th century BC, Scandinavia had already been part of a vast interconnected trade system for more than a thousand years in the process creating some of the most impressive artefacts found anywhere during that time period, and regularly seeing ambitious chieftains on war canoes ferrying out amber and skins from the Baltic down the river systems of Eastern Europe in return for resources from half a world away. The most important of all these trade goods, and the one that kick-started this ancient societal revolution in the first place, was bronze. For many experts, the catalyst for the birth of the modern world. A composite of tin and copper moulded together in intense heat with a bellows, bronze making has developed uniquely in many places on earth. But arguably the earliest and the most important for our story was in Mesopotamia in the middle of the 4th millennium BC. Copper had been smelted before, but when combined with tin, the metal entered into a new league, being much more solid and versatile than any other resource ever known. A material culture never before seen, nor available, soon began to take hold. Bronze was used to make agricultural tools, hunting spears, daggers, status symbols, ornamental grave goods, drinking vessels, jewellery, and weapons of war. As the secrets of bronze smelting gradually filtered outwards from the Near East, ambitious individuals quickly realised the immense potential it held. As demand skyrocketed, this new invention kick-started the rise of an international economy. The very first Eurasian world system. Metalworking had existed before in Europe. The first smiths living over 6,000 years ago in the Balkans. 
with sites such as the Varna Necropolis containing immense amounts of gold metalwork. Though this was a localised culture and soon died out due to environmental catastrophe, the expertise gradually made its way west, with people throughout Europe utilising local copper and gold to make items. Copper smelting is a dangerous pursuit, however, releasing deadly noxious fumes. When the secret of adding tin became known, a difficult-to-find resource, the entirety of Europe soon became linked into a singular trade system, reliant on that tin. It was one that would flourish until around 1200 BC. Though the Bronze Age kings eventually lost their power, due in part to the fragility of the trade system itself and also to the discovery of an easier to produce and more abundant metal in the form of iron. Such was the power of the Scandinavian system that it survived for at least 500 years longer than the traditional end of the Near East Bronze Age system, leaving throughout Scandinavia the evidence of this captivating prehistoric age that still litters the landscape today in burial mounds and magnificent artefacts. This is the story of the Nordic Bronze Age. Six thousand years ago, much of Europe was an unrecognisable place. Ancient primordial woodland extended across much of the landmass and a hardy population of hunter-gatherers lived in much the same way that they had done for tens of thousands of years. By around 4000 BC, however, a new revolutionary technology began filtering north and west from the Fertile Crescent, in the form of two curious little seeds, wheat and barley. In time, domesticated animals would follow too. Agriculture changed everything in Europe. Not only the old growth landscape, which would now become part of a slash and burn style of agriculture for thousands of years to come, but society too, allowing a food surplus, the growth of some kind of a priestly class, and when the population allowed it, the development of vast megalithic structures communal places of worship to celebrate the natural world and perhaps pay homage to the ancestors. These great structures, roughly contemporary to the city-states of Sumer and the earliest Egyptian pyramids, are found in great numbers from Sardinia to Orkney. The sheer man-hours that must have been involved with these projects plus the huge flint mines found at sites such as Norfolk in eastern England, hint at an exceptionally robust and determined society. In Scandinavia, however, the population was simply never high enough to develop the same megalithic traditions as their southern contemporaries. Excavated campsites and kitchen middens of the early Scandinavian hunter-gatherers, arriving in the region in around 8000 BC, are filled with sea creatures and shells. Even at this early point, there was an obsession with the sea. 
There, a unique archaeological culture known as the Funnel Beaker gradually developed as agricultural and pastoralist technologies filtered up from the Middle East through Central Europe and towards the Baltic. Contacts with Central Europe gradually brought carts and domesticated animals to Scandinavia, and in time, the next technological revolution, metallurgy, and with it, social stratification. In Egypt, technologies such as metallurgy had led to great building projects such as the Great Pyramids. And in the north, it would change everything too. In time, creating an outward-looking elite and a single grave culture rather than a communal society, suggesting an increased emphasis on the power of the individual rather than the group. Though this gradual shift towards social stratification may have begun midway through the 3rd millennium BC, an unprecedented event, leaving its mark on the very language most Europeans speak today, was about to sweep away the old world and build anew. The language almost all Europeans speak today is derived not from the Neolithic people who built Stonehenge, the Basques of northern Spain, being the only linguistic survivors of that ancient tongue. Today, Western Europeans speak a language that likely originated far to the east, on the Central Asian steppe, the tongue of the Indo-Europeans. As early as the 17th century, linguists from all over the world began to wonder about the apparently related nature of a vast number of languages. Not just the European tongues of French, German, English, Italian and Greek, but Armenian, Indian and even the Tocharian languages of Central Asia all seem to have been derived from a common ancestor. Thus, the enigma of the Indo-Europeans began. The hypothetical wellspring from which came most of the languages of Europe. Soon enough, it was realised that words such as cart, horse and wheel all derived from this mother tongue, perhaps suggesting a military takeover of ancient Europe by an outside force. One of the major theories developed first in the 1800s by the German linguist Otto Schrader and expanded upon by Maria Gimbutas in the 1950s, is that these proto-Indo-Europeans, perhaps after experiencing some kind of technological revolution like the domestication of the horse, left their homeland on the Pontic steppe to fan out in all directions and thus play a significant role in practically all of the civilizations of the ancient world. In the Indus Valley, Indo-Europeans may have destroyed one of the most advanced civilizations on Earth. In Egypt, carried on a never-before-seen technology, chariots, they, or a slightly related people, made themselves masters of most of the country in less than two centuries, leaving a lasting legacy in the region in the form of chariot warfare. In Greece, 
Such was their reputation that they were remembered down the ages as centaurs, half-man, half-horse hybrids whose wildness and craving for women and wine aroused both fear and wonder. In Europe, they gave us the vast majority of languages we know today, suggesting a subjugation of the previous population, or at the very least, takeover by a new elite, inspired by the culture of the newcomers, if not led by them themselves. This begs the question, were the Indo-Europeans responsible for the destruction of the megalithic society of Western Europe? Or did the existing population merely shift their society as new belief systems flooded in from the East? In Scandinavia, which had a smaller population in the first place, Indo-Europeans certainly left their mark. In the form of burial mounds, horses, carts, and eventually, as the technology developed, chariots. Though here, this culture merged with a native shipbuilding tradition to create something entirely new and unique. Of course, competing theories exist too, with various scholars suggesting Anatolian origins for the Indo-Europeans or denying the outside invasion entirely, instead suggesting a natural progression of native European beliefs. In recent years, however, backed up by an increasing amount of archaeological evidence, by far the most convincing argument is that the homeland of the Proto-Indo-Europeans lay on the plains to the north of the Black Sea, the homeland of steppe people for thousands of years to come at an archaeological culture called the Yamnaya. By around 3300 BC, distinctive Yamnaya archaeology begins to be found on the steppe. This was a mobile, wagon and herding based economy, which itself experienced a societal revolution when it began to herd animals rather than simply hunting, thus providing a future food source for themselves in the form of cheese and milk as well as meat. This was a single grave barrow building culture, based on individualistic perceptions of power. This was a culture that would spread across Europe, showing up for millennia to come, in places as seemingly distinct as Homer's Odyssey and Beowulf. It was also out here on the steppe that horses were domesticated and ridden for the first time, probably after being kept as a food source for several generations. The very first remains of wheeled carts have been found out here on the steppe too, dating from at least 3600 BC, likely developing from sleds, perhaps with the addition of animals to pull them. These were not quite spoked wheels yet, like on chariots, but still a massive increase in technology that as it spread into Europe allowed for far increased agricultural yields by using pack animals and carts to till the earth. The reason for the Yamnaya spread into Europe remains shrouded in mystery, though some, such as Jean Manco, 
have suggested a detrimental climate change after around 3200 BC, which could have caused the shift to the west. Thus, thousands of years after being hunted to extinction in Europe, horses were to return, ridden by steppe nomads, along with a new way of life. Perhaps introducing metallurgy to some of the areas they entered, as well as their single-grave, status-based culture. This process was by no means uniform. In some, perhaps most places in Scandinavia, the archaeological evidence suggests that no actual fighting took place, with certain areas perhaps developing their own native elites. Though, after a few hundred years, the language, at least, of the newcomers had taken over along with an entirely new outlook on life. The archaeological evidence suggests that by around 2300 BC, this new people, or at least their culture, had advanced deep into Scandinavia, into Upland and the Oslo Fjord, carrying with them the language that was the ancestor of the modern Germanic tongue. These new tribes, known to us today as the Corded Ware culture, were individualistic and clearly patriarchal. Their main symbol was the battle axe. And soon enough, these corded ware people, or their culture at least, would spread north to mould with existing funnel beaker traditions and create a new society, known as the battle axe culture in the south. And in the north, such was the influence of the sea that they would be known as the Botax culture. Both are known from thousands of graves that still litter the landscape today. Interestingly, in the last couple of years, even more evidence has been found for the steppe origins of at least some of the Corded Ware people, an archaeological culture which stretched from the Rhine to the Volga at its height. A genetic study recently found that out of the corded ware graves tested, a large percentage of those buried could trace their DNA directly back to the Yamnaya. It's important to note that these archaeological cultures were by no means singular nationalistic identities. They are far more likely to have been a vast collection of tribal groupings, unified by a common culture and belief system though as much at conflict with each other as other groups they came into contact with. Groupings overlapped over time, with the only constant throughout Europe being the eventual adoption of metallurgy and single graves as time went on. We know that some people did travel around a lot during this time. The chieftain known as the Amesbury Archer found in England in around 2300 BC is testament to that. When his DNA was tested, it was found that he originated far to the south, in the Alps. He was a member of the culture that took over from the megalithic builders, known as the Bellbeaker, often seen as the western contemporaries of the Corded Ware. The movement of ideas from east to west was by no means a given. Eventually, it was people from the Bellbeaker culture, or at least their material goods, that would spread back east to supersede that of the Corded Ware. 
but by that time, bronze had finally arrived in the north and completely changed everything. As the second millennium BC dawned, an increased demand for luxury goods gradually filtered into Scandinavia, along with new avenues of wealth and power for those daring enough to look outwards from their homeland. Connections were being made between societies on a much broader scale than ever seen before, seeing previously insular places like Scandinavia develop links across Eurasia. As Northern Europe's Bronze Age finally dawned, the first linked-up Eurasian economy truly began. For the North had a highly sought-after luxury good to offer, one that appears in tombs and archaeological sites from Egypt to Anatolia. Amber. It was also at this time that another Indo-European people, perhaps cousins to the corded ware, began yet another significant population shift from the steppe. The Sintarsha archaeological culture, descendants of the Yamnaya, are thought to have been the first people to develop spoked wheels, rather than their solid block predecessors. By 2100 BC, Sintarsha kings were buried with impressive war chariots, the earliest found in history. In the succeeding generations, chariots left their mark on peoples from the Nile to the Oxus. The Hittites, future makers of one of the greatest of all Bronze Age empires, were descended from these people. Likewise, the Mitanni and the Hyksos may have been at least in part Indo-European in origin. Though these invasions were devastating at first, in time, the introduction of spoked wheels led to an even more linked-up system, and often the revitalization of the regions they came into contact with. Closer to the north, the Sintarsha left an impact on early Mycenaean Greece, and the flourishing metalworking culture of the Danube. It was these people, in modern-day Hungary and Romania, whose Scandinavians first began to make sea voyages to trade with. The Carpathian Basin had a flourishing bronze industry that produced finely cast elaborate objects and elite weapons. And it was probably along these routes, down the river systems of Eastern Europe, knowledge of the spoked wheel and the two-wheeled chariot, together with well-trained horses, began to reach the north. The maritime nature of Scandinavian society in the second millennium BC is amply demonstrated by the ship imagery that pervades the archaeological record. Perhaps most notably in Sweden, where artists worked for centuries etching into the exposed bedrock. The artworks are varied, though ships, and sometimes fleets of ships, pervade. The Atlantic and North Sea coastal regions of Scandinavia and the Baltic areas were united by a vigorous maritime economy, permitting a far wider geographical spread. 
and a closer cultural unity than any of the interior continental cultures could attain. To seafaring cultures like this one, the ocean was a highway and not a divider. This route to the south, known as the Amber Road, already well established by the Bronze Age, was an important artery between north and south. Nearly all of the amber of Scandinavia found during this time is in the countries of the Middle East. The big four powers of Babylon, Assyria, Egypt and the Hittites, waging a perpetual political battle against one another. Also, like in future generations, the slave trade likely existed too, with captives taken in war being sold to the south. Thus, a determined band of voyagers, not too dissimilar to their Viking descendants some three millennia later, could have travelled across Europe, making the overland portages along the Vistula, Oder and Elbe, all the way down to the headwaters of the Danube, perhaps having their slaves carry the cargo of amber and skins traded with the northern laps before selling everything to southern buyers. Around 1800 BC, the first bronze begins to appear in the north in significant amounts. And as the southerners developed more of a taste for amber, everything was about to change. Around 1700 BC, metal begins to flow in in some quantity, with copper, tin and gold becoming abundant by the middle of the millennium. Where once the battle axe culture had been buried with copper axes, now leading men were being buried with bronze swords. Burial mounds, not too dissimilar to the kurgans built by the Yamnaya, lie everywhere in Denmark. Thousands of them, often looking outwards towards the sea, the source of their wealth and power. At the mound of Moldbjerg's chieftain, typical of the Nordic Bronze Age, were found Mycenaean gold beads on a bronze dagger. At Goldhoi Mound, another chieftain was found with a type of folding chair, reminiscent of those discovered in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Greece, Crete and Egypt, clearly showing just how far-flung the world of these people was. Though native metal workers were producing an array of items too, often superior in quality to those of surrounding regions. Though Scandinavians depended on long-distance trade, they did create a unique insular civilization too, adapting imports to a uniquely Scandinavian context. Ultimately, the Bronze Age would usher in a time of cultural advance in Scandinavia and a period of stunning artistic and technical achievements that could only imply a certain amount of opulence and success. In the King's Grave, for example, was found more gold than the entirety of Viking Age finds in Scandinavia. By around 1500 BC, the societal system of the North had become so intricate 
that it absolutely relied on foreign imports to survive. In terms of material goods, the Northern Bronze Age now becomes comparable to the Near East and is only surpassed in Europe by those of the Mycenaeans. We know of elite lifestyles from the thousands of burial mounds across the region, but of the houses and day-to-day -day living conditions of the Nordic Bronze Age, we know relatively little. It's thought that people would often have lived in quite impressive buildings, though because they were made of wood, they are near impossible to find in the archaeological record, especially due to modern agricultural techniques often leaving no trace whatsoever. In some places, however, where modern agriculture never quite took hold, we do get glimpses into this world. One of these places is Dartmoor in southwestern England. Here, we gain a glimpse into the Bronze Age, with the land divided into numerous pasturages for animals, suggesting a partly pastoralist society. Though roots were beginning to be put down in the form of villages, For the poorest in society, life had probably changed little since the late Stone Age. For the most part, slash-and-burn agriculture was still prevalent, with people moving from village to village over the span of generations, and thus still vaguely living a nomadic lifestyle. Well over a thousand years later, the Roman writers Tacitus and Julius Caesar talked about cattle raising being the favoured lifestyle of the Germanic peoples. This was almost a status symbol for a people who only farmed reluctantly. Was this a cultural leftover of the Indo-European arrival in the 3rd millennium BC? Indeed, finds such as carved oxmen and horned animals on oak coffins do suggest a fixation with large horned animals, a fixation also found in other post-Indo-European societies, such as Minoan Crete, the home of the Minotaur. Of the lives of people besides kings, we also gain a glimpse at sites such as Ectved, where we have evidence of a Bronze Age girl dating to around 1370 BC. Along with the everyday items she was buried with, Cutting-edge scientific evidence suggests that the Ectved girl had originally lived in the Black Forest region of Germany, before marrying and moving to Denmark. She is believed to have travelled back and forth between the two areas, until she was finally laid to rest in her new homeland. Perhaps the most famous example of the material culture of the Nordic Bronze Age, however, comes in the form of the Trundholm Sun Chariot, dating to around 1400 BC. Originally, this bronze model would have consisted of two horses, each pulling a representation of the sun. The addition of spoked wheels perhaps enabled priests to lead chariots like this around at solar ceremonies. Similar depictions are also found on rock carvings in Sweden. 
The idea of the horse-drawn sun on the blue fields of heaven is thought to have been Indo-European in origin and is seen in pre-Indian and early Greek mythology. It also has its parallels in far later Viking mythology, as recorded by the Icelandic writer Snorri Sturluson in the early 13th century. With the mighty horse Skinfax drawing the light of day each morning across the world of man, ever pursued by the great wolf Fenrir, who seeks to swallow the sun and usher in Ragnarok, the end of days. There are many interpretations of the religion of these people, with some suggesting the sun as representative of the heavenly gods of the cattle breeders, a belief system that seems to have merged somewhat with the native earth goddess of agriculture. Many carvings seem to illustrate the coming together of these two religions. Could this be the origins of the older Viking deities of the Vanir and the newer additions of the Aesir? And thus, could Thor, a storm god, be of a similar origin to the Hittite storm god and the Greek Zeus? The sun cult itself, depicted in strange rituals on Swedish rock carvings, remains captivating and mysterious. Priests, if that's what they are, seem to be wearing elaborate headdresses. Could these be a variation of the golden sun hats found in Germany from the same period? true golden age of the Scandinavian Bronze Age lasted for a brief hundred years or so around the year 1250 BC. Not only the whole of Denmark and southern Sweden, but much of the Baltic mainland and river systems found themselves united into one vast cultural area. The multiplicity of imported trade goods engraved during this period in particular bears testimony to the importance of these lengthy sea voyages. To the Danish islands across the Baltic to Poland, the coasts and river mouths of Germany, and perhaps across the North Sea to Britain and Ireland to find tin and copper. So firmly rooted was the Bronze Age system here that it survived for 500 years longer than it did in the Near East, which collapsed in around 1177 BC. Not long after this point, however, a new culture begins to cremate the dead rather than bury them. And as such, our information, the archaeological record, drops off. The Nordic Bronze Age faced a slow, lingering end, and by the time of Caesar, it left little more than burial mounds on the landscape. Though the culture and belief systems developed during that ancient time no doubt seeped into the Germanic peoples that came after. Thank you for watching this documentary. This was part of a mass Bronze Age collaboration of history YouTubers, so I highly recommend you go and check out the other videos in the playlist. Two of the videos that are roughly contemporary with this one are Nolegia's video on the Anatolian Bronze Age, and Stefan Milo on Egypt's Great Pyramid. 
I've put links to everything in the description below. Don't forget to like and subscribe if you enjoyed the video. And as always, any concerns or questions, let me know in the comment section below.